Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, this series is made possible by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. On this episode, we are so grateful to be talking with Cherie Curry. Cherie, of course, is the lead singer of The Runaways, the groundbreaking all-female rock group that also gave birth to the careers of Joan Jett and Lita Ford. And she's continued her music with her new album, Boulevards of Splendor, that was recently released on Joan Jett's Blackheart Records and includes guest appearances from Billy Corgan, Duff McKagan, and Slash. And she just joined Dave Schultz of Goo Goo Dolls on a rendition of the classic What the World Needs Now for the holiday season. Cherie's achievements and contributions are being honored next year at the 2021 She Rocks Awards, celebrating women in the music industry who demonstrate leadership and stellar achievement. And it's not just music. Cherie has been an actress, an author, and an award-winning chainsaw wood-carving artist. And today we're going to talk with Cherie about another way that she has taken leadership in the world, by being willing to share her experience of and coping with trauma. Now on the Going There podcast, our goal is to provide a safe place where people can feel heard and validated in an effort to challenge the stigma of mental illness so others can come out of the darkness and get the help they need. We have in-depth and at times tough conversations to address important topics so we can learn from each other about what it means to cope with mental illness. And Cherie is going to be talking about a very tough topic, trauma. Cherie experienced two incidents in which she was sexually assaulted. The first was at the age of 14, and the other was when she was 17. These are horrible incidents to experience, and many people suffer severe post-traumatic stress following these events, including anger, flashbacks, nightmares, and pervasive distrust and emotional detachment. And one of the things that is so difficult is so many people who experience trauma and post-traumatic stress feel that they do so alone. Not feeling able to tell anyone or get help can exacerbate the trauma by also making people feel isolated and helpless. So Cherie's willingness to share her story so that others who have survived trauma can realize that they are not alone and that there is hope is very meaningful. So let's go there and listen to what Cherie has to say. So Cherie, welcome to Going There. Thank you so much for having me again. I enjoy getting the chance to talk with you, that's for sure. Let's, let's, get, let's get right into it. You know, what we're going to be talking about today is very difficult topics, trauma and addiction. And... When we spoke originally, and, and you've been public about these experiences, you talk about two traumas in your life. One when you were uh, either 14 or 15, which was an assault, and one later when you were 17, which was an abduction. And that's, those are both in and of themselves very difficult experiences. And so what I thought we would do is maybe just start with talking about those experiences and what kind of response you had in terms of stress and trauma afterwards. All right. <laughs> I'm ready. So let's, let's start, let's start with the first and okay. talking about, about the earlier assault. Um, and obviously th these are, these are very difficult conversations. So we'll, um, you know, we'll kind of tread lightly and uh, try to balance being as sensitive, but, uh, well, you know, you know I just I just possible. did my I, I just did my audio book and which, of course, had these uh, 
experiences in it. And I have to tell you, I mean, uh, especially with the abduction um, chapter, it took me probably five days to even get up the courage to do it. I was so horrified and afraid to relive it because when you're actually speaking your own words, I mean, it's one thing to write things down. There's a little bit of a buffer there, but when you have to say it out loud, it changes everything. And um, so dealing with, with when I was 14, my, my twin sister, she had a boyfriend that was in his 20s. Um, and I just hated this guy. I mean, I hated him from the first time I saw him. There was something off about him. And of course, I was a virgin. And he would tell Marie how much he loved virgins. And, you know, Marie was sexually active um, long before me. I wanted to save myself. And... Uh, but, but, you know, I guess she had told him that I was a virgin. So, I mean, he'd be sitting next to her. I'll never forget. I was sitting outside in our backyard and he was just staring at me with this sick look on his face. And, and, and I was so creeped out by him. And I told Marie, I said, there's, there's something really wrong with this guy, Marie. I mean, there's something wrong with him. But anyway, long story short, you know, she and my mom had gone out to dinner uh, with my brother and I was left alone at the house. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the sliding glass door and and I noticed it was him. And and I just walked up to the door. I said, Marie's not here. And he said, just open, open the door just a little. He goes, you know, can, can I wait? I said, no, you can't wait. I mean, I, I just hated this guy. I just said, no. No, you can't. He goes, please. He goes, just open the door just a little bit. I'm not, I just want to hand you something. I forget what the reason was that I opened that door just a little bit, which was a big mistake because he just pushed the door open and came in. And, and of course, first thing he said was he heard that I was a virgin, which uh, Marie had told him. And uh, at that point, uh, he threw me on the bed and I was only in a, like a nightshirt because I was, I was alone. I was listening to music. This guy just, and he raped me. I mean, and I'll never forget, I fought him after he had actually really, I mean, then I just went berserk. I mean, I hit this guy everywhere but the bottom of his feet. I was so angry and he, he ran out the door. I guess his deed was done. And I'll never forget getting up and blood coming down my inner thighs, which of course, you know what that means. I mean, he had definitely penetrated and, and ruined me in my, in my mind, um, taking the one thing that I really wanted to wait for the right guy for. And, um, I mean, it was just horrifying, you know, because the guy stole something I could never get back. So that changed me. And then when my mother came home and I did tell my mom and Marie about it, um, and then I, I, I got a raging infection uh, that they had to take me to the doctor for. My sister never saw him again, but my mother didn't want to press charges. Back then, it was you know, just forget it. You know, if you forget about it, like it never happened, it'll go away. But it didn't go away. You know, that was when I just got very angry. I cut my hair off. I into a Bowie haircut. I, I, I was, you know, beating up kids at school that were picking on, you know, bullies. I only bullies picking on, you know, kids that wore glasses or whatever. I just was had to get this rage out some way. But um, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, you know, you live with that. So I've been living with that and that's what you do. You know, there's, I mean, so many worse things happen to people and that's how I, I just managed to move past it, but it still bothers me. It still does. Yeah. You know, you, um, you know, when we talked initially, I'll say it again, I'm just so sorry, obviously that happened to you. And you're, you're, you're talking about so many of the different consequences that can happen for people. There's, there's the things that you think 
or the memories you have, there's the emotions, there's the physical things, and even there's the social complications. And, I, you know, one of the things you're talking about is anger. And that's something that, that happens, I think, for a lot of people when they experience a trauma. And you're talking about the, the, the lashing out. I'm kind of curious, how, how did you make sense of all of it? You know, it's such a, it's such a, an absolutely not right, horrible, not a just world kind of a thing to happen. And just how you kind of talk to yourself about it. Well, I mean, how I dealt with that anger was I had to focus it on something. And what it was was bullies in school. That was something to me that was righteous. Uh, and that was if I saw a kid being picked on, I made sure that that bully fought me. It, it actually changed my school in a very positive way, which was very neat. But the thing is, is that, I mean, it had to be something that was righteous. It wasn't anything. It couldn't be anything else. I mean, I, I wasn't mean to people or I was, I was deeply angered deep inside my soul. But the thing is, is I would take it out on people that deserved it. You know, some people experience, there's nightmares, there's flashbacks, there's more general, um, you're talking about anger, but even just more general anxiety. Um, if, if you feel comfortable, did you have any of that following what happened? Um, at that time, I was very afraid. I mean, of course, I mean, this guy came in my room and raped me. A guy that my sister was dating, somebody that had been around my family, you know? So my trust wasn't at its highest, I'll tell you that much. You know, I think that's when the numbing, the wanting to numb came in because uh, there was nothing I could do about it. You know, my mom was very proper. Um, she, especially after I had been kidnapped, she turned to me and she said, what did you do to make him take you? That was what my mother said to me. What did you do to make this happen? And I was so appalled by that. I mean, but that was my, that's my mom, my mother's still alive, but she's got Alzheimer's and hasn't spoken anybody's name in seven years. And Maybe that's her purgatory for, for being the stern woman that she was. But, I mean, the one thing I really could have used was my mother. My father was, had moved away. They were separated, so he was in Texas when all this happened. So it certainly made me a better mother to uh, never do that to my son. But I, it was very hurtful. It really, really was. I mean, to, 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 to put the blame on me. But, you know, it, I guess her generation was just different. I, I don't know. I think that one of the things that a lot of people who have had trauma talk about is it's these two things that you've described, you know, your, your, your faith and your safety in the world has been shattered uh, in many cases because the trauma has been perpetrated by someone you know. And then there is this blame. I think it's, it's, it's less now. Thank God, but it's but I still think unfortunately it's common where they're either directly or indirectly, it's kind of like, well, oh well, you must have done something because people can't conceptualize of the concept of evil. I mean, I think we have a real difficulty kind of accepting that there's evil in the world and we'll do anything to to try to move around it, even blame people who are blameless in the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Uh and again, back then, Ozzy and Harriet was the norm, and bad things really didn't happen. They sheltered kids from those things. I didn't shelter my son. I mean, from the time he was two, I, I let him know that there were bad people out there because I was so afraid. He was so cute and so beautiful, and I thought, my God, some nutcase is going to get a hold of him. And I just can't let that happen. I mean, I had to put the fear of God into him at a very young age. But I mean, he's such a calm person, you know, at almost 30. And he thanks me for that. He really is glad that I was real with him um, as a child instead of lying to him, you know, because the thing is, is I, I and I did it selfishly because I thought if anything happened to him, my life would be over. I'll tell you that much over. So 
I always think the truth that children are so smart. They're so smart. You know, they're these little sponges that they do listen. Yes, he went through fear. Yes, he did. But it wasn't for a very long time. And then he just was aware. And for me, that was what I wanted for Jake was for him to be aware of his surroundings so that bad things wouldn't happen to him. And so far, so good. You, you talked about numbing, which, which I'd like to hear just kind of what, what that process was and how you did it, but also how you were able to both numb at the time, but come out with these insights. Because most people do one or the other. You know, they're either they don't numb and they get these insights or they numb and they, you know, they, they just kind of suppress it all. I'm just kind of curious how you numbed out, but then in the meantime, how you still had the wherewithal to kind of know like, hey, there's something going on here and I don't want to, um, I don't want the trauma to linger in this way at the very least in terms of how I deal with my kids. Well, I mean, I didn't numb at 14. Uh, by the time, I think it was like 15 and a half was when I started taking pills um, at the Sugar Shack. I did not drink hated it. I tried pot, hated it. So uh, back then going to these clubs, it was taking, you know, downers and cocaine and, you know, which, which is how I dealt with whatever I couldn't deal with, I guess, from that first trauma, which again, I just, it, there comes, there comes a point where you just have to turn around and say, you know, it is what it is. It happened and it's over. And now how are you going to move on? And you can't continue to obsess on those things because uh, even though you never forget, and trust me, trust me, when I watch some of these shows today, um, men that attack women or kidnap women and they get life in prison. And I, I keep, I mean, I actually tried to search out the guy that, that kidnapped me. I tried to find him to see if he was dead or alive. He's just gone because he should have had life. There's no doubt for what he did. He should have had life in prison and he did less than a year in county jail. But back then as well, you know, um, they blamed the girl and, and he plea dealed out. So uh, with all these charges against him, you know, to sodomy by force, and they gave right. him a year in county. And then, of course, I guess with good behavior, what do you get three months? Justice was not served. And unfortunately, I know this guy went on and did it again and again. I think he's probably dead because, uh, I mean, I can't find, I can't find him. And I've been trying to, but I can't. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad he got something, but uh, that, that just seems so... You know that's that's so incongruous with what happened. It's it's better than nothing, but it's uh, obviously I don't know the the legal circumstances of the case, but it just seems so mind-boggling. Oh no, someone, they had him know. up for rape, battery. I mean, extreme battery. I mean, he beat me. I mean, he broke a piece of my jaw. I mean, the guy just beat me within an inch of my life, and held me hostage for five hours. Um, and it was, I was covered in blood. I mean, when I, I mean, just, and the guy just looked at me like I was a normal person. I mean, like, I mean, when he was taking me to get my clothes with, he was just a nut. But the thing is, is that, you know, I mean, um, it was so brutal that still to this day, when I drive down the five freeway, there's an exit. I'm not even going to say it out loud that we got off on when he kidnapped me. And every time I have to go past that exit. I relive that night. So, I mean, it, it never, ever will go away. Um, I'm so glad that the laws have changed and that they get these people off the streets and they don't plea deal and they don't, I mean, they don't let them out after a couple of months, especially someone as, who was as brutal as this man who got me and is not as nutty as he was. But no, you're you're talking about the first guy, or are you talking? No, no, no. Now I was talking about this. I was talking about okay. the kidnap. I'm sorry. No, the okay. first guy was. It was a. You know. I hate to say it. A wham bam. Thank you, ma'am. Um, with Marie's boyfriend, because I I started beating him within. Because I mean, the thing was, is first I was horrified and terrorized that he had jumped on me, and then he was forcing himself into me. 
And then when the pain really hit, because it hurt, I mean, I just, it happened so fast. I just started beating him with, and, and he ran out the door, but I mean, it was a done deal. He never had any, any prosecution or anything like nope. that? Nope. Mom didn't want to talk about it. Marie didn't want to talk about it. And he it just is, vanished. He was just gone. Marie never said his name again. My mom never did. That's yeah. just the way it was. Yeah, I'm so sorry. It, it really highlights when it comes to something like trauma. And I think, you know, we'll get to this later, but just, just any kind of mental health issues in general, just how many systems need to be in place for things to go right. And unfortunately, how many systems can fail? You know, you're talking about, you know, interpersonal issues, family issues, you know, socially, in this case, a justice system. And it, it's amazing that, that anybody can come out of that having faith in anything, because there's so many failures along the way that lead to this kind of circumstance. And I'm just, it's so, it's so horrible. I'm sorry that this happened. And it's just, it's hard to hear. It was 77. I mean, things were different then. The cops were great, though, I will say. The cops, they took it upon themselves, which they can't do nowadays, to uh, rough this guy up when they did get him. So, I mean, things were just very, very different back then. And let's, let's talk a little bit, because in the interim of this is when the runaways happened. Um, if I'm, if I'm getting the chronology. Well, after my, the, the first rape with my yeah. sister's boyfriend, yes, about a year yeah. later is when I joined the Runaways. And, and one of the things that I'm, I'm just kind of curious about, because, you know, I think for a lot of people and, and, and to a certain extent, I, I was younger, but I, I was aware of the Runaways, but, you know, in, in retrospect, there was so much there that was happening about for lack of a better saying it, making people aware, like, hey, everything's not all right in some ways. Like, I feel like that that was one of the things that the band represented was that in a world where everybody, like you said, was sort of trying to make everything nice and clean and everything. It's like, hey, you know, some people are suffering. Um, and I felt like a lot of people connected to the Runaways back then and, and still do in part because it's like, hey, at least someone's saying that, the, that not everything is okay. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious if that's, if my looking in on it that way, if that's, if that's accurate, do you feel like that you guys were oh, aware of that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, the drugs were everywhere. I mean, if you didn't do drugs, people would think there was something wrong with you. It was a crazy time. Of course, we only had Susie Quattro, Fanny, of course, which I really wasn't into, but Susie was the only girl out there. Um, doing rock and roll, but things weren't fine. Um, but it also was a great time, a, a very a free time to express yourself, to dress the way you wanted to, to, you know, I mean, so it, it was a, a definitely a give and take. I mean, I think now, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to even compare what today is like compared to what it was in 1977 or 76 or 75. Um, but, you know, the runaways, I mean, we were just, we were, nobody had done what we, we were doing. So it was, um, it was a very exciting thing, especially for women that felt a thumb of a man on them. Uh, it, it, it definitely was something positive for them and like the women in Japan who still walked four feet behind their husbands, you know, so um, we made a splash, that's for sure. And I'm kind of curious just from your perspective, relative to the trauma, did being in that role have the same kind of cathartic or maybe healing effect that standing up to the bullies did. I'm, I'm, not, I'm actually presuming that it had Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely did. It made me feel like I was doing something good for because these kids were being traumatized. Every time a bully walked up and pushed a kid or broke their glasses or slapped them in the face for walking on the ninth grade lawn or, it, I mean, that is traumatizing. And 
they carry that for the rest of their lives. I mean, I had a gal who was called Big Red, um, who was a bully who attacked me in a locker room for no reason whatsoever, slapped me in the face, knocked me over the bench. I only had my underwear on. I was horrified. And oh my God, I mean, I was just not going to let that happen to other kids. And, and it's so funny when she was uh, on her way out of school, she apologized and she said that, it, that she never forgave herself for that. And I said, good. And that's all I said to her. Good. I'm not, I'm never going to be friends with this person. It's like, good, glad, you know? Um, but if, if somebody was going to cause someone pain, I was going to cause them pain. And I did. It's, it's, it's a very interesting concept. You know, when people talk about forgiveness, they'll often talk about it as though it means, oh, it was okay that you did that. And I, I don't, to me, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is, I know for a fact what you did. I know for a fact how it affected me. I have prevented you from continuing to do that. And the forgiveness is more like, I'm like forgiving a toxic loan. I'm going to drop the anger, not for, not for you. I'm going to drop the anger for me. So like yeah. when you, when you say that, like what you said to this person, it's sort of like something like, oh, well, why, you know, why don't you say, oh, I forgive you. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't think if somebody feels that they've been victimized, they're obligated to go out of their way to make the other person feel good. I think what the obligation is to themselves to make sure that they validated themselves, they protected themselves, and the anger is dropped for them. Because, I, you know, especially, and I know you will get to the issues of recovery, because, because of what the anger does to you. Not because of, well, you know, oh, you, you could have had this opportunity to make this person feel good. It's like, you know, with all due respect to whoever Big Red is, that's not your, that's not your role. You know, that's not your role at that point. Your role is no. to take care of yourself. And she has to live with it, you know, for the rest of her life. And um, that's hard because you don't forget. You don't forget when you hurt people. You don't forget those things. And... Um, there's always a price to pay when you do something hurtful to another human being that's innocent. Uh, unless you're a psychopath and a monster, um, you have to live with that. And that's, that's the part that I think it's very tricky for people when they've been victimized is when they're in the face of someone who is a sociopath or a psychopath or a monster and that makes it even harder to come to terms with because you're not necessarily able to then uh, assume or, or, or have any faith that, oh, well, this person is getting theirs, which is partially why you have to make it about you and not them. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, all, the other thing is that it's, at least my impression is that it's not, it's not very wonderful living as a monster. You know it somewhere. You know, like somewhere in there, you know, right? That, you know, and it's and I'm not. I don't think that makes it better necessarily for people. But let's kind of uh, transition a little bit and maybe talk about then. Uh, you know, and again, I, I appreciate you being willing to talk about this stuff. And but to talk about the abduction and what if again, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you're not is okay, and just what that experience was like. And again, similarly, like what kind of symptoms and, and trauma came from that? Well, um, I was at the sugar shack and my sister was getting ready to pick me up. Uh, I think it was just, just before 11. I knew she was coming at 11 and I, my purse was in the check. So I was just standing outside. So my purse was still in the club standing outside talking to the guard who I knew a bunch of my friends and this guy pulls up in a green limousine not an unattractive guy and that that's the scary part and he rolls down the window and he goes Cherie how are you how have you been long time no see you know it's like oh I mean the thing is is I was such a people pleaser that I mean, I, I didn't turn around and say, do I know you? Like, like today I would go, do I know you? But I didn't. I kind of just went, oh, well, nice to see you too. 
And he just said, what do you think of my new car? Isn't this cool? And I said, yeah, it's all right. It's cool. He goes, well, why don't you just jump in as I pull around a park? And, and something inside of me said, don't do it. But all my friends were standing there. The guard was standing there. I thought they heard him. And it was the people pleaser in me, again, the one that didn't want to embarrass somebody. Uh, I just left the runaways. Of course, I was known by many people. So I didn't want to hurt the guy's feelings. Big mistake because, because my gut said, don't do it. And I didn't listen to my gut. And your gut is always right. And I reluctantly got in and immediately he started showing me gadgets and look at this and look at that. And isn't this neat? And he's driving and he's pulling around. I knew there was only a couple places that would fit a limousine. And all of a sudden he passed the first one, the second one, it was not a big parking lot. And all of a sudden I heard the, the locks go down and he just went right out the driveway. It was that fast. Um, and the horror of it really hit me when he made a right on Magnolia. And I said, where are we going? And he said, shut, I'm sorry. He said, yeah. shut the fuck up. And that was when the horror just hit me. And I went, oh my God, I'm in a car that I can't get out of. I can't, because these locks, you can't, you, you, it, they don't work. On, when, when the master lock is down. And I was at, I said, look, my sister's coming to pick me up. I, I mean, she's going to be there any minute. And, you know, it was, it, 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 he was very violent. I mean, he started striking me, especially when we got on the freeway, because I thought, well, I'm just going to tell him, you have to take me back right now. And he just, just punched me in the side of my face with the backside of his hand. And I'll tell you, that will knock knock you into a world of absolute terror when somebody does like to anybody it's like being cold cocked I mean you don't expect it you and um I realized then I was in terrible terrible trouble and uh he said he was taking me to a party and it's a long story which you know it's not necessary for me I, I don't want to do play by play because it's just not what I really want to do but um, when he got to this house, which was probably 20 miles away, so we're, we're up in the boonies, and the house was dark. And I said, well, you said there was a party. And he said, we're the party. Get out of the car. And I, I said, no, I'm not going to get out. I, mean, I was like, I did not want out of that car. But he grabbed me by my hair, pulled me out. There was nobody around. The house was dark. He was pushing me ahead of him, pushing and pushing and shoving. And, and I mean, it just was the beginning of a five-hour nightmare of beatings and rapes and threats that I was never going to see my family again. He, I, I didn't have my purse. I had no idea. He would tell me that they're going to find my body up on Mulholland Drive and no one's going to know who it is that he had killed six other women in Dallas, Texas. And sure enough, he had been up for the murder of six women in Dallas, but by lack of evidence back then, you know, there was no DNA, nothing like that. And, uh, but he confessed to those murders and he said I was next. And I mean, there was no reason for me not to believe that. Um, it's, I mean, it's just anyone that's, bought my book and read that, especially the new book that really gets into to detail. I had to get into detail about what those five hours were like and trying to escape and stabbing him with a knife and all these things, you know, I mean, it, it was, um, it's still to this day when I, I mean, it, I, I don't think there's a day that goes by really where I'm not going to say something on television or hear something on the radio that doesn't take, take me back to that place. And, and again, I just, you know, by the grace of God, thank you. There's so many women that do not survive this thing. And that is what I take away from it is, is I lived through it. He didn't have to let me live. Somehow 
I talked him out of killing me, which I don't even take credit for. I, uh, because he was literally beating me to death when I was going, uh, I, I was leaving consciousness and I could hear this voice talking to him. And I thought, what is that voice? And it was actually my voice telling him that I'd go back with him. He said I lived with him in Dallas, Texas, and that I, you know, I left to be in this band and in this corset. And, and, and I mean, he was, he was completely nuts. But the thing is, is that I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't reflect back um, to it. You know, you never forget. You, you can't forget that. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's so, you know, what you're talking about, just every move, um, that, that ability of a predator to create confused feelings in someone all the way through is, is, is just such not an accident, you know? And I, when, when I work with people who struggle and they, they come out being like, I didn't know what to say. I'm like that. None of that was by accident. None of that, the fact that you were put in a people-pleasing position or that were kind of confused. It's like, that's what predators do. That's their skill is yeah. to create that kind of confusion and chaos in someone. And or, to, or make you have your guard down where you trust them. I mean, you know, the big smiles and the, hello, it's been so long and how are you? And I mean, the thing is, is, you know, not a creepy looking guy. I mean, not at all. I mean, he didn't look like a, a, a kidnapper, rapist, um, beater, murderer. He didn't look like that. So that's, I mean, I never, ever, ever, ever look at somebody and just think, oh, this is a good guy or, oh, that's a good girl. Or, I mean, I, I, I don't. I mean, the thing is, is that looks are deceiving and, um, you know, still, I mean, I love people. There, there's so many good people on this planet, really good, decent people, a whole lot more better people than there are these psychopaths out there. But still, they're around. The, the bad people are there. And, and um, we have to have our guard up at all times. I mean, you just have to. You just have to be smart. You have to look around when you're walking along. You have to listen you have to have your senses fine-tuned and make sure never to put yourself in a position where you can be alone with anybody or in any remote location with some with the, the possibility of being nabbed or what you just have to be smart and you know what that's that's why with my son i i just needed for him to know that he just couldn't go out on his own like we did when I when, when I was a kid anyway we could go play we we left we didn't have any phones we didn't you know we just go play walk around by ourselves you can't do that not now um so no it's it's and and what's so you know what's so disturbing about what you're describing is is how much of our peace of mind and our our sense of calm is is based to a certain degree on ignorance you know like we're we're walking around thinking like oh you know this this smiling face is is well intended and you know and and like you said you know most of the time it is but just to have at that age i mean you were so young and like to have that kind of sense of the safety and of the kindness of the world taken you know, just that you were just that you were able to come out of that with any sense of how to manage the world is so impressive to me. I mean, it just sounds like such horrible experiences. Well, thank you. I mean, it, actually, it wasn't until 2006, I think, where I bought my first gun. And it was fun. I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, cops back then, they were telling me I should get a concealed carry. And I was only 17 after this abduction. And it was funny because this voice in my head, I was just sitting outside. It was a beautiful day. And this voice said, you know what you're going to do today? You're going to go get a gun. And I was like, what? I went, okay. I mean, and I went and got a gun. I've got three now throughout my house. And the thing is, is I think it's very important because I don't 
believe I could live without it because at this point, I know what the playing field is. Someone tries to come and take my guns, that will be a fight because I absolutely know that there is no way I could survive um, a man coming into my home and, um, you know, and survive it. I just don't believe that I, I would. So the thing is, if someone comes in my house uninvited to do me harm, I'm going to kill them. And that is just, it's real easy. It's simple. I have a gun by, by my chair where, when I'm watching movie, I've got one in my bed, two in my bedroom. And uh, the thing is, is that, you know, that's one thing that I know I have that will level the playing field. And I believe that people that don't want people to have guns are people that haven't experienced their life being taken from them piece by piece. And I don't wish it on anyone ever. But if somebody had experienced what I experienced in that abduction, that kidnapping, that rape and torture, they would not, they would want to have something that could at least, at least die trying. You know what I mean? So that's one thing that I'm, I'm very pro-gun um, for, you know, not for personal use, for your home and all that. I'm, I'm an advocate. I, I think guns are great in the right hands. It's not, you know, they're terrible in the wrong hands, but what are you going to do? I think that one of the things that you're that you're also talking about is one of the things that's tough with with any kind of a traumatic experience or a mental health issue is that it it's it's so hard for people who have not been through it to actually empathize. And right. I think that one of the one of the things that's so difficult is that when when people are having these discussions, they don't start by asking why for anything or how, you know, even the stuff that you're going back to the stuff that you're talking about with your mom, you know, and again, I, I don't, I don't know her. I'm not, I'm not judging her in any way, but what was so clearly lacking from that situation is, is, oh my God, like, you know, how are you? What happened? You know, like, let me, let me try to understand this. It goes right into that judgment. It goes right into that blame. And well, think, right. You know, and it's, my it's... mother, yeah, my mother was not a good mother. She really was not. My father was a great father. He was an alcoholic. He was, uh, you know, after World War II. I mean, he really, um, he, uh, he had a hard time adjusting. And back then, they didn't have post-traumatic stress syndrome or anything else. Most of these People like my dad, who was a gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps, they drank themselves to death, which is what my father did. But he was a very good, caring guy. And I was with him. My mother had already gone to Indonesia when this kidnapping happened. And my father was wonderful. Um, thank God they caught him because he walked into the court with a gun to kill the guy. And... Um, my lawyer at the time knew my dad well enough that he had a couple of his guys go and stop dad. He was only like 14 feet from, you know, the, the perp and he was going to, he was going to kill him right there. And back then, you know, I mean, they just turned my dad around and said, Mr. Curry, come this way. But that's the way my dad wanted to deal with it. But, you know, Times back then were just so different. It's, uh, you know, now, I mean, this whole defund the police and all that. I mean, I've had nothing but the greatest experiences and I have so much gratitude for police throughout my life. And again, I have to look at their side, just like with the gun issue. I look at, at the people that have been injured and hurt, killed families of people that were killed by police. And I have nothing but empathy for them. Like I would want them to have empathy for me to want to have a gun in my house. You know, it's just kind of like, that's what America is. You have to, you have to be, you've got to empathize, but you've also got to realize that it's a free country and everybody, a good citizen should be able to do what they want and express how they feel, period. 
but you know, to pass judgment on people, no. I mean, no, I, I don't agree with things. I think we need police absolutely positively. I mean, that's very scary to me, the thought that I would have to pick up a phone and, and the police wouldn't come. That would then of course I'm glad I have my guns. So, you know, it can't you can't have it both ways. You can't defund the police and take everyone's guns. People will fight and I'll fight. I'll be out, I'll be out on the front lines fighting, you know, for that. Because you're right, when it comes to trauma, and I mean I remember things clearer as a kid than I do what happened three days ago. I'll be 61 this month, but it's true. I mean, I my memory is so sharp back then, but you know, three days ago, I couldn't even tell you what I had for dinner. So uh, I think we just need to be kind to one another and have empathy and not push your beliefs on anybody. It's just not the American way. You know, and the thing I'm kind of curious, because I think people listening are going to listen to kind of, again, not, not, not judging either your mom or your dad, but they're going to listen to how you describe your mom reacting and think, okay, I don't want to do this. But now it sounds like your dad was helpful. And I think people, I, I know myself are wondering, okay, like what was helpful so that if, if God forbid, you know, I, I, am, I know someone for whom this has happened, I can be that way. And I'm just kind of curious, like what kinds of things your dad did seem like it was such a different experience and such a positive experience. In you know, he was a broken man. Trust me. When he came to the hospital at five o'clock, five 30 in the morning, it was, sun was coming up. My friend, Andy, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but he had ran down and got the guy's license plate. So the cops knew when Andy took me to the hospital, the cops got the license plate. They knew where the guy lived by the time they were letting me out of the hospital, which I think was like 7 a.m. And they put me in the back of the squad car and they took me to that house 20 some odd miles away. They needed for me to identify the house, which I did. But my, my poor dad, you know, I mean, I can't even imagine what he felt. I mean, you know, being a Marine, being, he was just a wonderful guy. I mean, he was such a loving, good father. You could talk to him about anything. And, you know, he'd been through so much in his life, too. So, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Take your time. Oh, that's unexpected. Anyway. <clears throat> Anyhow. Um, he was the best, you know? I mean, just a wonderful man. And uh, he, would, he just said, Kit, we're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. And, he, and we did. You know, we did. I lost him just a couple years later, but Sorry. Thank God. Thank God I had him and, and my Aunt Evie and, um, you know, a strong family to back me up. I was very, very blessed. Yeah. And it's so, um, it's so interesting how, how simple but powerful and important that communication was. It's like that the term kitten, it's like, you know, that, that hey, we're still us. And we're going to be okay. Um, and that, that's what I'm picking up from it. Oh, is that, yeah. That, and that's... I mean, you know, you have to look back. I mean, these guys that fought in World War II. I mean, I mean, my dad, I mean, he had to kill people. You know, he had to, it's, and you were supposed to come home and be normal after that. That, you know, it's just, wow, what these, what these men went through. And what they go through today, you know, it's just, it's so horrendous, these wars and such. He had been through so much in his life. I mean, horrible, horrible things that he shared with me when he was uh, a Marine that almost makes what I went through just like nothing. But to me, anyway. Um, so, you know, it was a different generation. And, uh, but I'm glad, I'm so glad I had a great family. 
but he but he delivered and and you know it's it's yes. interesting because and i i want to just if you're comfortable you know i mean look you know we've we haven't we've only talked the two times but even in that time i kind of feel like all right like you just kind of have the sense like oh you can talk to sharia about anything I, I don't know what that is i don't even know if it's true but i i feel like i'm a pretty good judge of character and i kind of feel like you could talk to her she can handle it because there's a there's a depth that unfortunately comes one from negative experiences but also how you process those negative experiences that it can't necessarily be taught and i i kind of hear that a little bit with what you're saying with your dad like it sounds like he was a guy who had been through a lot and somehow through all the difficulties made the decision i'm going to come out of this with kindness you know what i mean i'm going to come right. out of this with empathy i'm not going to exactly. come out of this with rage i'm not going to cut you know and and just just that simple pivot of how how you know so many of the things that we do in life that are important are simple but not easy and and for a guy like that who you know i'm just presuming what he saw and 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 your and your kid i mean as a as a you know as a father i mean the only it's it's like it's literally like the only thing that is ever on, not that's ever on your mind but the only thing that matters is making sure your kids are okay and and to see that happen and in that moment to be able to 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 pull it together and be kind and say we we are going to get through this together um I don't know that that to me is like such a powerful lesson. It's like I didn't like how many and how many people don't get that from the people that they love. It's you know? so true. So very, very true. And that's uh, that's sad. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. So let's, you know, and, and I, I just want to take a little bit of time um, to talk about, you know, on that front your uh having become a drug and alcohol counselor in the midst of all of this you know and following this and i'm just kind of curious following that um you know if you feel comfortable talking about your recovery and how you wound up being to a certain degree kind of in a similar position at least from where i'm sitting to your dad where you're able to now turn it around and be understanding to other people well you know when I was a counselor, and that was in 80, late 86, 87, um, back then, it was so corrupt. I mean, it, these, these teen lockdown facilities that I worked in, I mean, it was all about money. It was, that's all it was about. And if the kid was caught smoking pot and the parents decided to bring them in, the nurses, I'd sit at a table with them first as a tech before I became an actual counselor, before I took the courses. But they would say, okay, Billy's coming in. He got caught with a joint. We're keeping him for three months, okay? And I, I'd sit there and go, what? I mean, it was because it was all money generated. And uh, I mean, kids were overflowing out of some of these rehabs and it was, it was disgusting to me. So I thought at least I, if I was, I don't know, I, I felt like I, I could at least help some of these kids um, to get them out sooner, you know, even though when you lock a kid down, I mean, we're talking door shut, lock, you can't leave, you can't leave that unit for months, except for we take them out on an occasional movie or this or that or the other thing. But I mean, that is traumatizing too for, for, for smoking a joint. It, to me, it was all insane. So of course, me being kind of a little bit of the rebel, which I'll always be, I wanted to be able to let them know that they had a friend and that I knew what was happening to them, which I didn't say outwardly, was really criminal. I just wanted to make that time with, you know, a little bit easier for them uh, because I knew it was so wrong what they were doing, so wrong. So again, that's me taking that, you know, instead of the beating up the bully, I was inserting myself into a, a time when it was such a big business where 
I mean, money hand over fist was being made through these hospitals and uh, kids were being just destroyed by it. So I just thought maybe I could help some of these kids that way. Um, most of them were not addicts. That's the sad thing. Some of them were. Some of them were, were, were serious drug addicts, heroin, things like that. But the majority of them were just put in there for the money. And because their parents were naive, it was a, it was a great injustice in the, in the 80s, what happened in these hospitals. I'll tell you that much. Truly, truly criminal. Yeah, you know what what you're talking about, and 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 quite frankly, a lot of people will find what I'm about to say in music. But it's like, what what at least the research that I've seen or the the anecdotes that I've that I've heard. It's like that just one thing that can get you through. If there's just like one thing that you can hold on to, like if it's a band, maybe there's one person who you feel like gets it, you know, an interest. I mean, it's, 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 if you can just find that one thing, you can somehow make it out. Okay. You know, especially mm -hmm. during those teen years. And if you don't have that though, um, just how devastating it is. And so, you know, for, for there to be someone, you know, in the midst of all this, just someone who at least they're like, okay, at least that person, you know, I mean, I, th I think percentage wise, quite frankly, you probably got more people with that, with your music, just because it disseminates more, but like, the the just to be even if you're in a place or you're in a situation there's someone who again that empathy that seems like they're not saying because you don't call people it's like you know it's okay kid and we're going to get through it like there's somebody who can like convey some piece of that can make all the the difference in the world and you know i appreciate the fact that you you were able to turn around and then get into that line of work because again just like the thing with your dad. I mean, it's just, it's so easy to just not go down that road. Well, it's about doing the right thing. I mean, you don't leave people behind, you know, you just don't. I mean, I don't, it's not the way I was raised by my dad. Uh, but I mean, I stayed as a counselor for about, I think two years and then I, it was too much. I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, I, I went on to become a fitness trainer after that before I married Robert Hayes. But I mean, the, it was always, it had to have to do with helping and doing the right thing. That's how I've always gravitated towards, you know, the cause, I guess. Um, at least I could sleep well at night because of that. <laughs> oh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, you coming on and talking about this. To be honest, I, I just enjoy talking with you and I love when we first talked and I enjoy this conversation, but uh, for you to step up like this and talk about these difficult issues, um, you know, the goal is for these conversations to be for some people that, that, that one thing they can, they can hold on to. And uh, very well, much I appreciate you very, very much until the next yeah. time. <laughs> and I look forward to it because I think you're just fabulous. Much love to uh, you, my friend. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks, All right. Sheree. All right. Bye. Take care. We are so grateful to Cherie for sharing this painful and difficult experience. I think one of the most important things to come out of the conversation is how difficult it can be to understand and process trauma. Cherie talks about how much she struggled, how she often felt numb and angry. And she tried to cope in different ways, including taking pills to help her escape the difficult emotions. Then there were other things she did, like channel her anger into standing up to bullies, becoming a drug and alcohol counselor to help others, and seeking therapy. And her music, art, and creativity have all been helpful. All of these components remain part of Cherie's ongoing recovery. But perhaps one of the most important things I took away from the conversation was her father's very simple but important response. Kitten, we're going to get through this. It is very disturbing to experience trauma and to hear about the trauma of our loved ones. And it's natural to want to avoid it, suppress it, downplay it, because it's so frightening. And this can lead to horrible things whereby survivors of trauma don't get the support they need, but rather feel blamed, rejected, and isolated. And her dad's simple communication, that he loved her, 
was going to be there for her and that she would ultimately be okay is such a simple but effective message that can be part of the healing process. And while not every intervention is going to be effective for everyone, I think it's a good general guideline of an overall mindset of how we can begin the journey of helping the people who we love survive a traumatic event. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, which is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you or someone you know has suffered a traumatic event and are looking for assistance, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center at www.nsvrc.org, or the National Child Traumatic Stress Network at nctsn.org. Additional resources are available at the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourselves and others. See you next time at the Crossroads. Consequence Podcast Network.